0: Hello again everybody, this is uh, Jason Powers I'm uh, actually sitting in the studio, well, my uh, office area And decided to do a, a retro broadcast today So this will take us back, uh, well, 41 years ago Actually, 1981 And the major world leaders of the time and will be heard And I think it will give you a viewpoint of... Uh, what politics, what leadership, what, um, uh, what was going on, and it will have a lot of echoes to today, but you can always find echoes in the, uh, echoes of, uh, things that were going on in the past, uh, in, in the present day, but just so, you know, uh, just thought I'd, uh, put this together, so, um sit back and uh, you'll hear uh, voices from the old days Uh, first step will be from the BBC from uh, sunday uh, december thirteenth of nineteen eighty
1: one about the series by Horace Newcomb in the Christmas double edition of the listener, which is out on Thursday. In 20 minutes on BBC One, Everyman reports on the current state of belief in Britain, examining the results of an opinion survey by the European Values Study Group into the beliefs, morals and attitudes of today. Now, at just after one minute past ten, an extended bulletin of news with Kenneth Kent.
2: armed forces now rule in Poland with martial law and the threat of execution for those who break it. At home, the snow comes back, worse than ever, but a thaw is coming behind it, and a car bomb explosion in London kills two men thought to be Iranians. In Poland, it's more than 20 hours since the military took over, a move, they said, to prevent civil war. Tonight, their grip on the country is tighter than ever. Poland, now under martial law, is sealed off from the outside world. Britain, America and other Western nations are watching closely. The Soviet Union apparently wasn't involved, but from the background they approved. The crackdown was aimed at the independent trade union solidarity. Most of its leaders were arrested, though Lech Wałęsa was not among them. But their reaction was defiant. You are trying to liquidate us. We will strike. We've received our first pictures of the hours
1: after the state of emergency was declared. Michael Burke reports. The troops had moved in at midnight, surrounding Solidarity's offices all over the country. They seized officials and documents. In Gdansk, they arrested nearly all the Union's leaders gathered there for a conference. Only Lech, Lech Wałęsa was left free to negotiate with the government, but hardly from a position of strength. It was five hours after the army had moved that the party leader and Prime Minister, General Jaruzelski, had gone on television to explain why. After so many months of argument, he felt it necessary to crack down on Solidarity and all it stood for. The General said the country was on the edge of an abyss. And he said, we are not days but hours away from catastrophe. By then, his armed forces had already isolated Solidarity and the country. Our correspondent in Warsaw, Tim Sebastian, has been able to report only by telex. He says the troops have consolidated their hold on the capital. Police patrols have been pushing back angry crowds who've whistled, jeered and shouted Gestapo. Now, says Sebastian, it seems unlikely the relative calm will persist. Communications with the East as well as the West have been cut off, and that includes the Soviet Union. Our correspondent, Keith Graves, is in East Germany. And today, when he drove to the Polish border, he found it heavily guarded. What made General Jaroselski, a man most regarded as a moderate in Poland, order the clampdown? His country is billions of pounds in debt to the West, debts, incidentally, that are now even less likely to be repaid. His people are so short of food, they're living on what many would consider a starvation diet. But it's the threat to Poland's communist system, posed by Solidarity, that's made him act. In the last 10 days, the radicals within Solidarity have been increasingly outspoken. Even more important, they seem to have won the backing of Lech Vawensa, who until recently had been a calming influence in the Union leadership.
0: So there you go, that's uh, the first one. So names from the past, Lech, Lech Vawensa. V- 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 uh, I can't pronounce anything any lightly. Uh, this next one is from uh, Margaret Thatcher. Uh, she's being interviewed, and I'm going to play about eight minutes of uh, her uh, responses and, and how she describes how she handles government and then the questions that she is uh, asked uh, thereafter. In the media, we have,
3: with, we have us with us the Prime Minister, the Right Honorable Margaret Thatcher. Welcome to Afternoon Plus, Mrs. Thatcher. We also have with us seven ladies who have actually reached the top also of their professions, who will be putting questions that concern them and us to the Prime Minister later in the programme. Well, it's been 20 months now since you took office, Mrs Thatcher, an eventful 20 months, to say the least. Indeed, you come to us fresh today uh, after reshuffling the Cabinet. Can you tell us, with that reshuffling, what you hope to achieve? Well, first,
4: reshuffling isn't a job that any Prime Minister welcomes, because if you are to promote those who have done well, It means you've got to ask some people to relinquish their portfolios and that's the difficult part and you have to really grit your teeth to do it but you've got to promote people who've been doing well you've got to encourage people who are doing well on the back benches that there'll be a place for them and that you must do it also gives the government a new momentum a new dynamic it reaffirms the direction in which we're going and then you know there is another factor almost every interview I do people say and when you're going to reshuffle and that induces a great uncertainty in people's minds so you'd better get it over and done and the time to do it is during a parliamentary recess I felt I couldn't leave it much longer so now it's done the future is reaffirmed and we'll go full steam ahead again
3: you said you wanted to encourage people who want, you know would like permission what mm. about the people who you perhaps can't tolerate because of their strong criticism of your cabinet. I mean, both Mr. Pym and St. John Seavis have been outspoken about cuts in public expenditure, haven't they? If I
4: couldn't have tolerated them, they wouldn't have been in my cabinet in the first place, because we could never have got on. Cabinet government consists in discussing and in deciding jointly in which direction you should go. Every Prime Minister has to tolerate criticism. If you put yourself in the front line, you must expect to be shot at. Mm. And after all, Mr. Francis Pym is one of the most able people we have and I'm very sorry to have lost Mr Norman St Stevers. Mr Francis Pym could do most jobs. It was marvellous to have him in defence. It will be wonderful also to have him as leader of the House. The other thing which I should perhaps say is you want to give some people wider experience than just one department.
3: That inures to their
4: benefit and to the whole of the government as Mm -hmm. well.
3: It was something, too, in the Financial Times which said a warning shot across the bars of the so-called wets in the cabinet. That's an awful word, wets. I hate it. But uh, it is rather a comment.
4: Uh, I had to do a reshuffle. I had to promote some people. I had to give some people wider experience. I did it quietly, without fuss, efficiently, in the normal incidents of the day's work during a recess.
3: I understand that what angers you rather a lot, disloyalty and leaks of information. I mean, you've shown how displeased you've been with that. That has happened quite a bit in the government so far, hasn't it? Leaks there have been, yes.
4: They shouldn't happen because it makes doesn't make for efficient cabinet government if you feel that anything you say might be repeated outside. It should not happen. It shouldn't happen in any government. I hope it will happen less and less. I think people are very much aware of the damage that it's done. Disloyalty. It's not a question of being loyal or disloyal to a Prime Minister. Cabinet government consists in coming to a decision by discussion. What you should never do is say, all right, I'll go along with it inside cabinet, provided outside I can say I don't agree. Mm-hmm. That is not cabinet government, mm-hmm. and it will weaken any government. we have had one or two problems. I hope we're through those.
3: You seem, on the other hand, to enjoy battling. You seem to thrive on it, and Barbara Castle wrote in her diaries that power is the best cosmetic for women politicians. Do you agree with that? Well, I like battling. (laughs) I like battling.
4: The trouble is, if you're not careful, I'm not sure it's a good cosmetic. The battles can show in your face. But I like battling. Yes, I do enjoy question time. Because then I'm facing absolutely on my own the whole of the opposition and, of course, questions from our own side, too. Everyone can see that no one there can help you. You've got to know your stuff. Only you can find the answer. And that I do love. And if there's a row, I never mind it, because I can cope. Mm. Not that I particularly think that Parliament should be run by a row a day or a scare a day. And I don't think the British people like it either. But if there's a real battle,
3: yes, I'm right in the middle. <laughs> it, at the beginning of the day, you know, sometimes I wake up and I think, now am I going to enjoy today or am I going to dread it? So you say, oh good or oh God, what do you say most mornings? I look forward to every day. Every day has new opportunities. Of course there are some days
4: when um, I'm just a little bit fearful. It might be that you have a tremendously big speech in the House of Commons, or a big speech which is going to be televised. And somehow, and I think you must know it, the moment those television cameras move in, (laughs) something changes. You're not just quite as natural as you were before. And I think that is just about the worst worry I have, the big speeches. The things when you haven't got to issue a press release and read something out, I mm. much prefer, I'm much better really at just talking mm. and just getting up and making an informal speech than I am at issuing the press releases and then reading through them. Mm. And you know, if you don't read every word out, this uh, finds some significance in what you haven't mm. said. Yeah, we were
3: all saying before we went on the air, weren't we, the moment the television cameras began to go like that. We were all feeling apprehensive, well, I don't think you do. Oh, <laughs> yes, I do. Um, one last thing before we go and look at some vox pops, mm. Mrs. Thatcher. A person who has um, such strongly held views, obviously, is owned to strong criticism, we've already broached the subject already a little earlier on. but you do listen, which is what you said you, do you do listen to people's criticism of you? Of course I do. Yeah.
4: Um, I and mean, when I have to, as some of it may well be very valid, or it may be that we're not putting the full facts over so they don't see the reason for the decision. Of course, some Mm. of the
3: criticism may be right. And if it is, then you've got to change. Yes, good. Well, at that moment, uh, it brings us neatly to the next part of the program. Before our studio guests put their questions to you, uh, let's hear what women were saying yesterday in the streets outside our studios. i would be delighted to ask Maggie Thatcher a question. As a teacher, I'm very, very concerned about what is happening within the schools at present time. And my one question would be simply this. What is this government that says education is an investment for the future, for a technological future, what is this government going to do about the kids who are now in school who are not going to get an adequate education now and certainly in the future? What is Maggie and her government going to do about that? Well I do demand this as but I'd like to know as the manager of the routine, Is she fully aware of the problems of the small businesses and when is she going to do something about it? I'd like to ask her if there's any moral justification in spending billions of pounds on weapons of destruction when she's cutting areas of need such as health, social services and education. Well, I'm 17 and I'm unemployed and I was wondering what Mrs. Thatcher would do for people like us. The other day Mrs. Thatcher had the gall to compare herself to a nurse, but could she actually make ends meet on the same pay that I get? what I'd like to know. I'm a pensioner myself, I'm 72, and the question I'd like to very much have her answer is when she's going to stop taking money away from
4: the pensioners and pay them a decent and adequate pension and they can live on, because nobody can live on the pension I'm given £29 a week, £29.71. And there are many, many, many thousands of pensioners who are frightened to
3: death this winter to put the heating on because the The cost of electricity bills, the cost of everything has gone up and the pension they're getting is inadequate and has been cut over this
4: last year. That's the question I'd very much like answered and I'm sure a great many pensioners will be with me in asking that question.
3: Mrs. Thatcher, can I put that question from the last slide, the pensioner, to you first? She does find it difficult to manage. I think and also a lot of people are saying that in fact they're from November not going to be linked to inflation, the pension. So can you answer those points?
4: Uh, shall I deal with the last one first? That's not quite right. Over the whole period of a the Parliament, they will be linked to inflation. What happened this year was we increased the pension actually slightly more than the rate of inflation. So if we over, link the price in one year. Uh, we adjust in the following year but over the whole lifetime of a parliament they will be linked to the increase in prices. I did note very carefully what the pensioners said. Our problem is this. Everything governments provide really have to come from the working population who have to pay for education and for pensions and for an increasing number of pensions and of course it has to come out of contributions. Uh, if our questioner is not being able to manage and i would be the first to understand her problems and she must go and get extra pension from Social Security she can. She noted particularly the fuel costs. Yes, I agree they are heavy. That's why we did provide an extra almost two hundred million pounds this year to try to help those worst in need whether pensioners or young families with their extra fuel costs. So in fact this year pensions have gone up slightly more than the cost of living. We have provided the extra fuel, but all the time the limiting factor is it isn't governments who provide the money. Mm. We have to get it from the working population and they don't like spending too much uh, out of their wage packet, either on income tax or on value-added tax or on contributions and that's the limiting factor. A very good
3: full answer for the pensioner. Now the nurse, you did say the other day, uh, you're comparing yourself with the nurse, I think I might say, that take-home pay of that nurse was 315 pounds a month. Could you manage on that, said the nurse. We all had to start
4: and we all had to start on very small wages, salaries, and we all had to learn to live on them. Again, every extra thing we put into the National Health Service, we have to decide where it will go. I think most people would say the most important thing in the service are the doctors and the nurses and getting their services to the patients. We negotiate each year. In fact, the pay increase to nurses, we honoured the Clegg Award in every single way. Not only that, we did more. We provided extra money so that their hours could come down. So I think we did everything that was asked of us and a bit more because we felt so highly about nurses and felt they should have a decent living. Is that's that's dream dream
0: so as you can see, or as you've heard, uh, the same things have uh, been occurring for, well, always and forever. The same questions come up, the same economic choices are Put before the people, the only thing that's really changed is uh, the numerical uh, value or the magnitude of them So um, speaking of which, we're going to go on to Australia And um, this is uh, ABC News from August 17th of uh, 1981
5: This is almost certain to attempt an
1: armed hold-up when he runs short of money
5: The federal budget for 1981, the most heavily guarded for years, is expected to continue the government's anti-inflationary and reduced spending policies. The Treasurer, Mr. Howard, will deliver the budget to the House of Representatives at 8 o'clock tomorrow night. It's a budget which the government has said will be tough. The high capital inflow of recent months has forced the money supply beyond the government's expectations and threatened a new bout of inflation. The ABC's Canberra office says against this background and the tough anti-spending measures the government has imposed, it seems unlikely that spending will rise much in real terms. A board of inquiry heard today that half of the postal votes in the two Richmond City Council elections had been tampered with. The inquiry was called after allegations of vote rigging in the council's 1980 election and a by-election earlier this year. Here's our urban
6: affairs reporter, Alan Russell. Counsel Assisting the Inquiry, Mr Robert Redlick, said forensic tests had shown that about 50% of postal votes cast in the 1980 general election and a by-election in April this year had been tampered with. Mr Redlick said he was unable to say who was responsible or why the votes had been tampered with. His statement to the inquiry was made as the first day of formal hearing of evidence began. 15 people were called to give evidence concerning postal voting. One of them, Mrs. Christine Barker of Ramsden Street, Clifton Hill, claimed the lid of a ballot box was open when she lodged a postal vote in the April by-election. Mrs. Barker told the inquiry she went to vote the day before the election was held and noticed the ballot box was unlocked and the lid partially open. A number of witnesses also told the inquiry they'd received postal vote application forms without asking for them. The witnesses said they'd been sent along with campaign literature. The inquiry has been adjourned for three weeks. Alan Russell for ABC News. Security at the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Melbourne will cost
5: about $6 million, or half the estimated cost of holding the meeting. Prime Minister says his department estimates that the meeting, starting in Melbourne late next month, will cost $12 million. President Babrak Kamal has told a political and military official in his country that it's time for Afghan forces to move from defensive to offensive action against anti-government rebels. According to Kabul Radio, the president said considerable progress was being made against the counter-revolutionaries. As the Reagan administration moves to strengthen its defences, the American media is playing up a conflict between the Secretary of State, Mr. Haig, and the Defense Secretary, Mr. Weinberger, over the MX missile system.
7: Reportedly, Weinberger favors an air-mobile concept, launching the missile from an advanced aircraft that's still on the drawing boards. The airborne MX would be less vulnerable to Soviet attack, but defense experts say it would also be less accurate. Haig, on the other hand, favors a land-based MX on grounds it would be more politically appealing in Europe. European leaders might resist installing new missiles on their territory if the U.S. is unwilling to do the same. Haig lost a similar argument last week when Mr. Reagan decided to go ahead immediately with plans to build and stockpile the neutron bomb. Haig counseled waiting, again in deference to European feelings. No one imagined it would be possible to make former General of the Army Alexander Haig look like a dove in defense matters, but soft-spoken Caspar Weinberger is managing to do just that.
5: Tests have confirmed that about 10% of the workers at the Tobaldi Small Goods Factory in Coburg in Melbourne are carrying Salmonella bacteria, the suspected cause of an outbreak of food poisoning. The Victorian Deputy Director of Public Health, Dr. Rauch, says, however, the results are only preliminary and not all the staff at the factory have been tested. Dr. Routh says positive results found so far are likely to be as a result of staff eating Dibaldi's salami at work. Ninety-eight Victorians have so far been affected by food poisoning, believed to be caused by eating salami, and a total of 230 people around Australia have been affected. The American actress Zsa, Zsa Gabor arrived in Sydney today and expressed some firm ideas on love and marriage. Reporter Mark Gifford was at her news conference.
6: Jaja, as she prefers
5: to be called, quickly warmed the Australian media despite the reports of viciousness she'd heard on the Hollywood vine. She's out here to appear on a chat show and to chase up some relatives. It's Jaja's Zsa first time in Australia and she proved as charming as some of the characters she's played in an acting career spanning some 42 movies. Despite her long trip, she looked well, politely turning, turning down reporters',
6: reporter's questions.
0: Question. So, a little Hollywood there, but uh speaking of Hollywood, uh now we're going to listen to uh, President Reagan's uh, first press conference He delivered it on uh, January 29th of 1981 I'll have to wait a second here It'll echo a lot of the sentiments Of what's been going uh, What's been bantered about uh, Recently How do you do? I have a uh...
8: Brief opening statement here, before I take your questions. Yesterday, Secretary of the Treasury, Donald Regan, sent to the Congress a request to raise the debt ceiling to $985 billion. This represents a dramatic jump of $50 billion over the previous debt ceiling. The administration took this action with great regret, because it's clear that the massive deficits our government runs is one of the root causes of our profound economic problems. And for too many years, this process has come too easily for us. We've lived beyond our means and then financed our extravagance on the backs of the American people. The clear message I received in the election campaign is that we must gain control of this inflationary monster. Let me briefly review for the American people what we've already done. Within moments of taking the oath of office, I placed a freeze on the hiring of civilian employees in the federal government. Two days later, I issued an order to cut down on government travel, reduce the number of consultants to the government, stop the procurement of certain items, and called on my appointees to exercise restraint in their own offices. Yesterday, I announced the elimination of remaining federal controls on U.S. oil production and marketing. Today, I'm announcing two more actions to reduce the size of the federal government. First, I'm taking major steps toward the elimination of the Council on Wage and Price Stability. This Council has been a failure. It has been totally ineffective in controlling inflation and it's imposed unnecessary burdens on labor and business. Therefore I'm now ending the wage and price program of the council. I am eliminating the staff that carries out its wage pricing activities and I'm asking Congress to rescind its budget saving the taxpayers some one and a half million dollars a year. My second decision today is a directive ordering key federal agencies to freeze pending regulations for 60 days this action gives my administration time to start a new regulatory oversight process and also prevents certain last-minute regulatory decisions of the previous administration the so-called midnight regulations from taking effect without proper review and approval all of us should remember that the federal government is not some mysterious institution composed prized of buildings files and paper the people are the government What we create, we ought to be able to control. I do not intend to make wildly skyrocketing deficits and runaway governments simple facts of life in this administration. As I've said, our ills have come upon us over several decades, and they will not go away in days or weeks or months. But I want the American people to know that we have begun. Now, I'll be happy to take your questions. Helen?
4: Will your policy toward Iran be one of revenge or reconciliation? And will the United States honor the recent commitments to Iran, especially since you approved of most of them during the campaign?
8: Well, I'm not certainly not thinking of revenge, uh, and I don't know whether reconciliation would be possible with the present government or absence of a government in Iran. Uh, I think that the United States... Uh, will honor it, the obligations. As a matter of fact, uh, the most important of those were already put into effect by the preceding administration in negotiating the release. We are, however, studying because there were four major uh, agreements and there were nine executive orders. And we are studying thoroughly what is a pretty complex matter we've discovered uh, with regard to whether uh, they are in keeping with international and nas- our own national laws. And so I won't be able to really answer your questions on specifics until we've completed that study. Sam?
5: Mr. President, what do you see as the long-range intentions of the Soviet Union? Do you think, for instance, the Kremlin is bent on world domination that might lead to a continuation of the Cold War? Or do you think that under other circumstances, detente is possible?
8: Well, so far, detente's been a one-way street. The Soviet Union is used to pursue its own aims. Uh, I don't have to think of an answer as to what I think their intentions are. They have repeated it. I know of no leader of the Soviet Union since the revolution, in including the present leadership, that has not more than once repeated in the various uh, communist congresses they hold their determination that their goal must be the promotion of world revolution and a one world socialist or communist state whichever words you want to use now as long as they do that and as long as they at the same time have openly and publicly declared that the only morality they recognize is what will further their cause meaning they reserve under themselves the right to commit any crime to lie to cheat in order to attain that and that is moral not immoral and we operate on a different set of standards i think when you do business with them uh even at a
0: detente you keep that in mind uh, let me take someone young lady very interesting there at the very end i think uh all of us can uh, appreciate uh some of what he was saying there it's certainly uh it certainly harkens to today as far as morality and whatnot, but uh, we'll end it here with um, somebody whose uh, son is currently destroying the very document that this uh, leader uh, started to talk about, um, Pierre Trudeau, from November fifth of
9: nineteen eighty-one. The premiers, and if I can uh, do that at this stage And later the proceedings, we might find. Uh other copies, this is the only one I have with me, but I'm sure they will be distributed, and the substance of them is uh, probably known by now to members of this house. Uh, I won't explain them in any detail, except to uh, say that we have, by consensus, constitutionalized an endeavor began in this house more than a year ago bring Canada's Constitution to Canada, to have in it an amending formula, and to have in it a Charter of Rights. <laughs> on all of the I would first like to thank most members of my caucus, and particularly the Minister of Justice, and the ministers of this government, who have stood steady in the endeavor to achieve these three objectives, Madam Speaker. And I think the applause that we have just heard is a a just expression of uh, our happiness with this outcome, having, after 54 years of failure, having succeeded in creating a consensus to give Canada its constitution with an amending formula, but into the bargain to put in a charter of rights, particularly in the area of language rights. So I want to thank members of my caucus. I want to thank the leader of the New Democratic Party and the the members of his caucus who uh, have supported this effort. It was, to that degree, a joint effort. And uh, there were a great deal of discussions engaged between members of my caucus and his. And I would uh, also like to thank uh, the member from Edmonton East, who was at the beginning of this operation in May of 1980, if I recall, when he uh, offered a motion to this house, which was supported unanimously to the effect that we should patriate with an amending formula, regardless of all <clears throat> The task is not yet done, we have in this House to look either at amendments to the motion, to the resolution before both Houses of Parliament, to the joint resolution, or alternatively to a new resolution which would incorporate the patriation, many elements, all the elements of the Charter with uh, a couple of non-obstantive clauses and an amending formula in lieu of the one that was in there. I hope that the uh, leader of the opposition and the leader of the New Democratic Party will agree to consult with me in the course of tomorrow to see uh, in what ways this resolution, this joint resolution, could be presented in, in a fashion and in a form which hopefully would uh, permit the speedy passage this house, in a spirit of harmony, of the result of uh, of these strivings, uh, incorporating, as I say, these three objectives, and uh, hopefully in a form too which would facilitate its passage in the United Kingdom Parliament, one last time our constitution would be amended there, and that would be <laughs> the last time. to the government house leader in the other place because there is a change which affects them in this accord a change which which was put forward in the compromise uh, amending formula and uh, I know that uh, the reason where they had held for their veto up till now was that they felt it their duty to protect the provinces but uh, after consultation with the house leader in the other place, i uh, feel we can be hopeful that now that the provinces themselves have consulted to this uh, that they will uh, accept this amendment too uh, uh, je...
4: finally
0: So there you go that's uh an interesting uh, flashback through history of uh, nineteen eighty one uh, between Reagan, Thatcher, Trudeau, um, at this time in my life, I was oh, I was nine years old. I do remember watching uh, lots of politics. The East German mentioned the West German uh, at that time. France, you know, people like Francois Mitterrand were in France, and Helmut Kohl and. Various names of the past Like Um What's his name um, I can't even think of all the other Leon F. Brezhnev The early 80's had uh, a lot of Interesting I mean Yeah, there was lots of Lots of things going on There was a polar shift uh, Going on just like there is right now This one will I think it's substantially more dramatic than the ones that were going on then Uh, in regards to uh, the world and and what they were doing. In 1981, they were coming out of or dealing with the idea of recession. They were still a bifurcated world. Um, Globalization had not really been... I mean, at that point in time, China was... Much do About Nothing was not even really mentioned very often uh, due to the size of its economy and, and its uh, uh, blackout of information. The West still had a moral integrity, which uh, it uh, is uh, flailing and lacking in many ways. Those of us who grew up in this, this time frame know that we are a far, far different uh, culture And some people of my age should be well aware of that and be very disappointed in themselves for the things that they push. So we'll leave it there. God bless the United States of America. And God save the world.